You're listening to the Pro Boy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Pool Boy Podcast. It's Steve here. I've got uh, Bob and Katie on the line and uh, to celebrate 20 years of Pool Boy, we thought it'd be a good idea to have uh, a bit of a podcast chat about the five Olympic Games that have taken place since 2000. Um, we're obviously big swimming fans. Bob's been at a number of Olympics, but we thought we should bolster our Olympic pedigree with someone who's uh, been to rather more Olympics than any of us. So I'm delighted to say that uh, Sharon Davies joins us for this podcast. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's been ages, actually. And well done for, to you guys. 20 years. Gosh, and you don't look a day older, any of you. <laughs> it's very <laughs> kind of you to say so. Poking on you. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to start somewhere. Let's start at the very beginning, as they say, and go all the way back to... Uh, year 2000 and the the Sydney Olympic Games um a fantastic Olympics overall I think it's fair to say uh and a, and a brilliant swimming competition but Bob um not really the swimming competition that Britain would have wanted after all no medals um against some some reasonably good hopes I think it's fair to say uh and not the outcome that everyone was hoping for I went to Sydney with great anticipation and great expectation. And every day when I went to the pool, I thought today is going to be the day that we break our duck. Looking through, Paul Palmer went there as defending um, from silver from 96. That's right, was in Atlanta. He got 90, uh, silver in, in Atlanta. So we're hoping that things were going to happen. And he didn't even make the final on day one. And I'm thinking, ah, it's maybe not going quite to plan uh from from day one onwards and then you know i, I was naive i looked at our, our list of swimmers i thought yeah yeah there's, there's there's a few possibilities in here um but every day sadly uh, i went down to the pool and came back with feelings of uh, emptiness really i suppose because because maybe i was naive i thought we would do a lot better i had a chat with james parrock before i went and he said you know what we're not going to come away with anything from this well oh, you you're so negative you're you're so pessimistic um and it just every single day watching the australians do very well and uh, the dutch doing quite well and obviously the americans as ever do really well and i just thought one of our lot's going to break through here will it be the four by two team nearly was uh, would it be Mark Foster? Could have been. Uh, there were just so many ifs and buts and maybes. Um, Alison Shepherd, people like that. All the people you thought that might just break out of the pack. Nobody managed to do it that week. Sharon, Bob mentioned Paul Palmer. He was one of our, our big hopes, I suppose, on, on day one, missing out on the final of the 400 free. Do you think that, you know, when one of your big swimmers mm. you know, drops away on the very first day, do you think it has an impact on the rest of the team? I think it does, actually. I think it's particularly the British team at the time because they weren't always um, full of confidence. You know, they would often see the the negative side. And um, I think if you think now, you know, we, we have the absolute opposite. We have Adam always starting at the beginning of a competition and he lifts everybody. He makes everybody feel so confident that they go in and they believe they can do anything. And I think because we were hoping that Paul would start that Olympic Games off with success, and it didn't happen. I think it put a downer probably on everyone. And everyone started to doubt their preparation, doubt their confidence. I mean, it was an amazing Olympic Games. It was the first uh, green Olympic Games. It was the first Games where we had games makers. 
you know, it was in the heart of a country that absolutely adores sport. Um, the weather was great, pool was great. The only thing I remember is being stuck in the Olympic Park, which was quite a long way from Sydney Harbour and all the stuff that was going on. And, and that was quite difficult because there was nothing to do in the evenings, you know, absolutely just went dead. Um, and I had a, an exercise bike delivered to my room and that was where I sat and listened to um, Steve Redgraves win his medal on this exercise bike in my hotel room. <laughs> so that was my memory of, the, of that particular Olympic Games as far as like the overall vision of it. But swimming wise, it was, it was just one of those ones where every day you went and you just got just a little bit more disappointed really with everyone's performances. Highlight for me was working with Tracy Wickham because I was doing the commentary for, for Radio 5 Live and uh, working with Tracy Wickham was absolute joy. She was terrific. And, um, and she, she became uh, a token Brit for the week because she wanted us to do well. She wanted us to be able to talk about positive things with the British team as well. So, so every yeah. night she, she was almost becoming more British than I was because uh, the Aussies that had their success, Susie and, and, and Thorpe and people like that were all doing really well. And she was desperate even more desperate than I was by the end of the week for us to have some success. Well, it was the Ian Thorpe Olympics, really, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, being in Australia and sort of breaking in on the scene like he did. I mean, you know, that's what everybody internationally was chatting about all the time. Well, I think for me as well, the um, it was, it, there were a couple of really, really young girls who did incredibly well in the, the breaststroke. I think it was Liesl Jones as sort of breaking out and, and Megan Kwan. And, and for me, you know, they were about the same age as me. And to be seeing people, you know, at the very, very top who are the same age as me, it sort of makes you look at it. And although, you know, as a British team, we weren't doing so well, you're seeing people your age doing incredible things like that and just thinking, oh, you know, like maybe one day, you know, if they could do it, then maybe I could do something like that. And I think it, you know, it's a bit of a catalyst to like, am I actually going to try and do this properly or, you know, just, just have it as a hobby. Um, it's quite, it's quite an exciting, I think it's quite a pivotal moment when you see something and think, oh, I want that. Yeah, but something you know, historically has quite a few young people that come through and are successful. Um, you know, even up to the point where in London, you know, 15 year old winning the 100 metres breaststroke, the same. I mean, so it, it has that history of where it just throws out the odd amazing youngster who just seems to mature really early on, get in and absolutely surprise everybody. Um, but that's the wonderful thing about sport and swimming now, you know, is it's, it's a lot older than it used to be. I love the fact that our swimmers now can have a career which will very likely, if they're good enough, be three Olympic Games um, and that we don't just see them once and then they disappear again. You know, that there's a structure in place to support them properly and there's a mature attitude to them and they look at themselves as being able to be mature athletes, very much like athletes on, in track and field are. You know, that's changed a lot, certainly since when I was swimming, which it was predominantly young people you know really young people i mean gosh the first time around i retired at 18 i mean that's that's retired at 18. i mean that's just stupid isn't it really but that's that was the times i can't remember had the lottery kicked in by that time do we have oh any funding my at that God, stage no we had no funding at all so we had sports aid there was a tiny bit of sports aid going on but it was very small grants um, but no, lottery didn't come in for oh gosh, you know, until it came in. It came in between. Uh, it came in between Atlanta and and Sydney. So I, I don't know yeah. exactly when off off the back of that. But so so well, we would have had some funding the, for a little bit, but maybe not for the whole cycle. Yeah. So Atlanta, the big memory of that was. Do you remember the divers selling their tracksuits on the street corner? And that story hit the British papers that to actually carry on doing their diving, they had to sell their international kit to be able to keep swimming or keep diving. So there was a, a, a big push to try and find a way to be able to fund athletes to make them you know, more professional. And as a British team, Great Britain did great in Sydney. It was just 
swimming that didn't do very well. I mean, for us, Sydney was the beginning of, of big success. I remember being on the, the British jumbo plane as we were coming back and it was full of all the, all the Brits and the BA had stuck all the Olympic gold medalists up in club, you know, and everybody else was, was wherever they had to be. But it was chocker full of British gold medalists. <laughs> Whereas if you look back to 96, I think we won one gold medal. One. Yeah. yeah, one gold medal in rowing. And that was yep. it. So it was a massive change internationally for Great Britain. Just didn't happen for swimming. I want. There was one uh, one incident on the on the deck, Sharon. I wanted to ask you about that. Um, I, I think it was after the the hundred freestyle semifinals. Or it might have been the two hundred AM. I'm not entirely sure. When um, when Sue Rolf came out uh, after her race, and and she wasn't having the week she wanted. Clearly, you know, she was mm. European champion. She was Commonwealth champion in the hundred free. Uh, she'd beaten England Bruin the year before in, in Istanbul but it just wasn't going her way in that week and she I think she unloaded on you she had a massive rant about semi-finals and facilities and and everything like that and how she had uh, I think she was probably training in a 25-yard pool in Newcastle at the time and Ian Thorpe had gesturing over her shoulder you know the, the the Sydney Olympic pool to train in do you remember do you remember that happening you know, how did you feel um, I don't particularly remember exactly what she said, if I'm really honest with you. Um, and I remember um, her being disappointed. Um, as you said, you know, she went in there with, with big things under her belt. Um, there is a massive step up, I think, from something like the Commonwealth Games to the Olympics, you know, particularly in things like sprinting, when all of a sudden you bring the Americans into the equation um, and the Dutch and, you know, the Germans at the time and, and so on. So I think, it, and if you look at Sue's stature, compared to people that were winning Olympic medals, she was half their size. And we know that that nowadays plays a huge part, you know, particularly in women's hundred. I don't think there was a single person under six foot um, in the last Olympic final. They are really big, strong girls, as the guys are. And that was always something that, that kind of, maybe at this particular point was beginning to change, but certainly went against Sue, I think in, in that, you know, in that arena. Well, the year before, she was the European champion, wasn't she? Um, and it was our first European female champion since, yeah. since Anita. And so what, what so, was the standard of that particular race, though, and how fast was the time? Pretty well, strong. It, it was decent, was it? actually, from what I recall from Istanbul. Yeah, it was a decent, was she, decent swim. Inge de Bruyne was, was silver in that race. I think she was 54-something, you know, which... But, you know, it's, it's history, isn't it? You know, you mm. get judged on what, what happens in the... And, yeah, in the pool, you know, unfortunately. And it's different. I mean, I, no matter what anyone says, the pressure that comes out in the Olympic Games is tenfold on anything else because you're always in a four-year cycle. So whatever happens, you're on the way to the Olympics. So any of these things that you win on the way, whether they're Europeans, Commonwealth, or even Worlds for that matter, they're still on the way to the Olympics. And it doesn't matter the same way that the Olympics matter. And if you, know, if you think this is likely to be your last Olympic Games and you think, well, I've really got another four years in me, then the pressure on you to, to get that performance on that day um, is, is very mental. And I do think that it, it knocks the team psychologically pool not swimming well so that people started to have doubts. And you can't have doubts. You can't have the tiniest doubt in your brain when you're standing on, on a, on a, in an Olympic final in a, on a, you know, a platform at the Olympic Games. You have to 100% believe in your talent and your ability to be there and the fact that you can actually be in the mix. So I don't know whether that was something that happened to Sue. Maybe she started to wonder why, you know, she didn't have such great facilities. I mean, okay, it's a long time ago, but when I won my medal in 1980, I trained in a 33 and a third meter pool. I think I got in a 50 meter pool twice in that year for two competitions and that was it. 
And most of my training was done in the 25 yard pool because that was all we had available to us. You know, and I was competing against, you know, people from all over the world that trained in a 50 meter pool, but that didn't, that wasn't creeping into my head. You know, it was the only thing that was creeping into my head at that particular time was, was drugs. But ultimately, there was, as far as I was concerned, that was the only reason I couldn't beat them. There was no other reason that I couldn't beat them. Um, I think a lot of it is psychological. Psychological is incredibly powerful, what it can do for you, the belief in yourself or not in yourself. And that t our team has that now. You know, they have people like that Duncan that believes in themselves and Adam that believes in himself. And that is so contagious with the rest of the team. They just didn't have that in Sydney. Didn't have the belief that they needed. There were too many people, from what I recall, who were standing on the blocks and looking at the people who were alongside them with reputations, not quite having their knees knocking, but pretty close to it. Mm. And I think a lot of people were intimidated on the block before they even left it because they were looking at people saying, I can't beat you, you're too good for me. And the, uh, there was an awful lot of that, I thought, during the course of the week in Sydney. And wasn't one of the criticisms that of sort of coming out of that when stuff started to change that perhaps people were going into it with the mentality that they'd got the job done by getting on the team and, and sort of losing sight slightly that there was still something to be achieved. And, you know, that's absolutely not saying that anyone was going in there thinking that you know the Olympics would be easy and that they they'd got their their gold sewn up just by making the team but there's a certain sort of attitude that oh you know I've, I've got through trials I've made I've got my tracksuit um, and now I am an Olympian and sort of forgetting that it needs to be stepped up a notch when you actually get there. I mean that was that was the games that, that Jonathan Edwards uh, commented somewhat disparagingly about the swimming team wasn't it you know that they were was it he did it lots he did it in 92 yeah. as well i remember because i was <laughs> on that team and i remember taking him to task over it and just saying jonathan get on with your job we finished <laughs> but, i yeah. still hold a grudge about that even though i've never met him and i don't know anything about him except that he was a very good triple jumper i still it makes me cross every time yeah, yeah. i think i think that was certainly you know the attitude that bill sweetener when he came in the year after tried to change wasn't it you know one of the first things that he you know, whether you agree with the way he went about it or not, it was certainly his his aim was to to make making the team not be the the end, if you like, and just the the, the means. But um, yeah, I think that that's certainly a comment's been raised. Bob, I want to come back on on Ian Thorpe because because um, I think Sharon mentioned it was the Ian Thorpe games. He won the the gold on the first night in the four hundred free and world record, and and kind of set the Aussies off. You know, exactly right and then had probably one of the most iconic races of the of the olympics in that four by 100 free and the last event of that <laughs> first night where the where they took down the americans for the first time ever um do you do you remember calling that i say you do and in fact i was reminded of it by a colleague who said he was listening back at the uh, broadcast center and says it, it was the hair on the back of the neck commentary and i went well, i didn't realize it was quite that good because it, it was the first olympics i'd done but he said no he said you captured that moment very well uh, and I certainly do remember the, the race very well I also remember having commentated on, on Ian Thorpe in, in Malaysia at the Commonwealth Games which was the first time I'd, um, I'd done a major games uh, and being amazingly impressed by this young man who uh, who come from nowhere obviously what was he 15 for um, the Commonwealth Games I think in, in that, yeah. and uh, incredibly mature for that age and you're thinking, well, here is a superstar, but you're going to have a real test in a couple of years' time when you've got to prove it in front of your own crowd. And he seemed to be absolutely nerveless. And, and, and he had an impeccable week, him and Susie O'Neill, 
um, had fantastic weeks, as we know. But you know, him in particular was 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 amazing, quite quite amazing. But again, he had that lovely luxury, doesn't he? You know, it's just 17 and years feet. of age. And the feet. Yeah, well, he, has the, he had the physique. You know, he's huge, massive great paddles on him, perfect swimmer physique. But ultimately, nothing to lose and everything to gain. You know, and, and so he goes there knowing that he's, he's getting better all the time and that he's got one, maybe even two more Olympic Games in him and this is home crowd and they will carry him through. And, and you know, those are the sort of things which are, they're lovely. They're lovely to have in your arsenal knowing that you've got you know, futures and everything that happens is a bonus. And then you just, yeah. It's like when you watch someone like Kelly, you know, win and then go on and win another goal because actually she had nothing to lose, Kelly Holmes, in the next race. And then she wins another one. But that was purely because she had one in the bag and she had nothing to lose and everything to gain. So that's a wonderful place for an athlete to come from, to have that in your arsenal, can, really, that lack of Can I just um, ask about the... Uh, the Australian media, um, I think now, um, and, and I wasn't really paying attention back, back then to kind of the way that things were being covered, and obviously it would have been positive because they were doing so brilliantly. Um, I see the Australian media as pretty brutal and they come down very hard on their athletes, I think, and they expect a lot from them both on the field and off the field. And if you put a foot wrong or you don't perform, you know, that the, they can be quite savage. Do you think that's something that's changed since those Olympics? Or do you just think that because they were doing such a brilliant job and everyone was performing, we just didn't see it? I think that they are worse now than they were then. Because I just think the media around the world is worse now than it was then. You know, people get away with being more ferocious now and, and being biased with their presenting. And whether you want to call it fake news or no, they just present one side of an argument and it's, you know, it's the side that they want to present. I mean, I... I there was a lot of pressure on their swimmers because you've got to remember the swimmers are far bigger stars than their track and field athletes. So you mm. think about track and field in the UK and how big they are to the, to the Brits, the Australians think of their swimmers that way. So there's just that, you know, there's a much more of a magnifying glass on them than there probably is on any other sport um, at an Olympic games. It's their primary sport. Yeah. Cause I remember people saying to me at that time, you know, their swimmers are like our football players. Mm. And at that point I thought, Oh, that's amazing. You know, that's great. All the support they've got. But when you see the other side of it and the scrutiny that they're under and the sort of criticism that they come in, in for when they don't perform, it's, um, you know, I, I think you see quite a lot of issues now with retired, certainly Australian swimmers um, and, and the way that they're treated by the media. And I think it's certainly got two sides to it. Also, it was the first time I realised what a big deal the 1500 was to the, American, to the Australian public, because I obviously had Perkins and they had Hackett at that time. And it's like not quite the country stops like it does for the Melbourne Cup, but it's pretty similar to that in swimming terms, is the 1500 was their event. It was yeah. the big event. You know, the, the Thorpe might be doing really well, Susie and Neil might be doing very well, other people might be doing very well, but the 1500 was I, I didn't get it until I'd done that event and I'd seen it and the crowd reaction to it but it, it's almost like it took it to a completely different level but they were distant swimmers weren't they Australians you know they had that history you talked about Tracy Wickham you know again 800 meters you know superstar over distance events a bit like the Kenyans you know nobody really you know expects the Kenyans to get on the track and win the 200 but whenever <laughs> the distance events come out everybody comes out to watch them so I think it's just that it was their history with Australia and that has gradually changed. Um, I think Ian had quite a lot to do with changing that, really, and Klim and all those guys. You know, they, they, they sort of 
sexted up from what was a distance events um, to being a bit more maverick-like and, and glamorous because obviously the sprinters are just mavericks, aren't they? They're different beasts, you know? <laughs> I mean, I love it when you're in a dining hall and you just um, look at everybody's shapes and sizes and their mannerisms and the way that they carry themselves. And even the other day when I was chatting to all the Kelly swimmers, I could just tell by the way that the questions were coming at me whether these people were sprinters or distance swimmers or whatever, just because their whole persona presents what they do. And you just think it's, you know, that's, it's crazy to think of it that way, but it was wonderful to sit there in a dining hall and watch somebody come in who's a tiny little gymnast or a, you know, a seven foot basketball player or a weightlifter and trying to work out what country they come from, what sport they do, what event they do. Um, yeah, we're, we're just, we're racehorses when we get to the Olympic games and everyone's got their thing. You know, I don't know if you felt that, Catherine, when you were in the dining hall, but I used to love it. I just used to love watching all the individuals come and just you know, see what they do and what their personalities were like. Guessing what sport they did. Yeah, I only absolutely. got that in, um, in, in Delhi and, you know, I think quite a few people looked perhaps a little bit depleted in the <laughs> Delhi dining hall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hungry. <laughs> On that note, let's, uh, let's draw a line under, under Sydney, which uh, clearly the low point as far as the Olympics were concerned for Britain over the last 20 years. Uh, and fast forward four years to Athens, 2004. Now, uh, obviously, I mentioned the change with Bill Sweetney would come in as performance director in 2001. Britain had had a good World Championships then. Uh, pretty good, well, very good Commonwealth Games in 2002 and their best ever at that point World Championships in 2003. So I think, I think Bob, hopes were, were pretty high, probably higher than Sydney heading mm. towards Athens. Yeah, massively so, because you're right, we'd had a very, Fukuoka was good, uh, the Commonwealth Games was good, Barcelona was very good. So we'd had three very good step-by-step -step improvement years really uh so i think we went into athens with a lot of expectations we had the number one ranked swimmer in the world in the 200 free women you may recall <laughs> we did. yes we did uh in mel marshall uh we also had other people knocking on the door uh, and of course we, we got two bronze medals out of it too from from steve harry and from, from david davis so so we did have a massive improvement but again i, I would say overall when you look at the rankings going in to uh, to Athens, and I know I, I take on board what Sharon says that rankings in the Olympics don't necessarily coincide particularly. But I think even then, I think our anticipation was, and I certainly remember you'll remember this, Sharon, that, that Bill wouldn't do an interview with us afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, he disappeared. Bill Sweetham actually disappeared and wouldn't do an interview with you. We wouldn't do an interview with me um, because he was upset, annoyed, whatever about the outcome because he expected I know he expected more than two bronze medals out of that yeah I mean I have to say personally I was more disappointed with the team swim in Athens than I was with the team swim I think in Sydney um, for exactly the reasons that you've already just pointed out you know they had three major wonderful competition build-ups they had lots of people in positions um, where you were expecting them to be in there fighting for medals um, uh, I mean, I think that, that Bill just had such a tight rein on them that they imploded. You know, it, it was just really sad to watch. Well, I think that's that's the number of the matter, really, isn't it? You had uh, six six medalists from Barcelona the year before. Um, Mark Foster didn't get picked through all the politics and second trials and injuries and whatever else that went on in, in April, March of that year. Um, and then the other five, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm sure it was different for, for each of them, couldn't reproduce the performances they'd done, they'd done the year before, whether it was overtraining or the, or the mental side, Sharon, as, as you're saying, mm. with the pressure. Um, and 
uh, we'll, we'll talk about Steve Perrin in a minute, but but um, I've spoken to David Davis recently about his his fifteen hundred, and, and what he said to me was you know, fits exactly with that. In that he said he was what a, a seventeen eighteen at the time. He'd never been through this before. He didn't care. He was just having the best week of his life, and it showed in his swimming. Sharon. Absolutely. You know, again, he had really nothing to lose. He was a youngster who was improving all the time. I think sometimes 1500 meter swimmers can, can be very much a breed of their own. So they go off and they just do an awful lot of their training and they're knocking out big yardage and, and everyone else is doing massive tapers. And, you know, if you're a sprinter, you're posing around the side of the pool and whatever you're doing. And I think they just put their head down and they keep on going. And I always felt with David that he was off to the side somehow. Steve brought to the table that immense maturity from training in America and from racing the Americans all the time and not being frightened of racing the rest of the world, which is what one of the things that we, we were lacking. We're not lacking now, but we were lacking for a long time of racing across the pond, for sure. Um, and everyone else just got scared witless and instead of managing them properly um, Bill treated them more like children and there was all sorts of personal things going on in the background with a few of the swimmers as well which were quite difficult and instead of also understanding that us as journalists you know the, one of the unique positions with the BBC presenting swimming is that the majority of people that are doing it are either ex-swimmers who have 100% faith and love of swimming and are behind the athletes or people like Bob who just absolutely love the sport and would never do anything to hurt the sport and he treated us like the enemy mm. which was just crazy because all we actually wanted was for the athletes to swim well you know none of us want to be interviewing people that are crying or disappointed or don't make the final when they come there with the world's fastest time you know we want the athletes to swim really well and um yeah it was it was there was a horrible atmosphere from day one and it just gradually got worse and worse and worse. And the problem is I just say it as it is. And that's why Bob wouldn't, you know, that's why Bob got the job of having to speak to Bill at the end of the day, because I just wasn't going to have any nonsense. Yeah, well, that was obviously Montreal, that was Montreal a year later, as we, as we, as yeah. we know. But, but uh, there were two, two very quick, because I don't know Katie's champion a bit. Two, two memories from that for me are um, James Gonard having a medal for 25 minutes. Yeah, and then not having a medal. Yeah, on off, um, on off, wasn't it? Yeah, well, he, he hit that bronze because of the, yep. the disqualification for, for Aaron Pearsall. Uh, was it was it Kreiselberg? No, it was Pearsall. Yeah. 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 yeah, um, so we had that. Uh, so he had, he had a medal for 25 minutes, and I felt really, really sorry for him because you know he had, had his hopes elevated as far as he was concerned. He was a bronze medalist, and then he wasn't a bronze medalist. And do you remember Sarah Price getting caught by the underwater camera in Athens? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was in, the last time in, that in we swam outdoors, actually, in, in, um, in, in Olympic Games, Athens. And I loved that, Paul. I, I, you know, I thought it was beautiful Olympics because it was the 100-year celebration. It felt like we should be there. But, yes, the last time that we were allowed to swim outdoors at Olympic Games. Athens. Yeah, but Sarah Price getting caught by the underwater camera while she it was... was new um, technology, in, wasn't in, it, as well? In warm-up, yeah, in warm-up, mm. this was. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they tried to get the, the... It was the 100-back semi-final, wasn't it? They tried to get it delayed, but, um, but, but didn't. And, obviously she uh, she went out at that stage but uh, yeah that was a, a bit of an unusual unusual yeah, occurrence there was, there was a few things like that going on you know a few accidents which were out of their control as i said there was also a swimmer that was having a crisis at home as well which we were kind of led to believe something was going on and then bill was keeping it a secret and and that was this lack of trust thing that was happening between us and them and then the swimmers were told that they can't speak to us when they were coming through and so they wanted to speak but then they couldn't rather than coming to us and saying can you just make sure that you just ask one or two questions and i always keep i mean i am 
that my interviews in the mix zone are just about the shortest ever. A, the BBC always do fairly short interviews and that's what they like to do. But B, I know that they want to go off and swim down, you know? So my loyalty is always going to be with a swimmer, always, you know? So it's a shame that he, um, he created that really, because I think that had a very negative effect on the team. Let's bring it back to uh, to the 1500, Bob. You said you were a convert to it after Sydney. That was, it was, well, it was up to that point, the best 1500 final ever, you know, the fastest 1500 final that ever been. Uh, first four guys under 1450, under 1446, in fact, and then Prelokov in fourth at, at 1453. So in, insanely fast 1500 metre final. Um, and, and we now know that, that Grant Hackett was, was actually quite ill. Um, and was feeling under pressure uh, leading into that with uh, with David and with, with Larson Jensen, the young American, breathing down his neck. Um, did you feel David could do it? I mean, I'll be honest, I lived in Australia at the time this was on and you can bet on anything in Australia. And when David <laughs> set a uh, set a British record um, to qualify fastest in the heats, I'll, I will admit to having popped in and put a, a sneaky bet on him to win that. But, um, but Hackett had the class in the end. Well, yeah, but I've got to say that I, he, he was the swimmer I'd seen come through the ranks very, very quickly. Remember, going into the Commonwealth Games in 2002, he hadn't gone under 16 minutes at that point. He made a massive improvement in Manchester, huge improvement in Barcelona. Either side had done really well in the European short course as well. Um, so, so David was on a, a massive upward curve. And, and what I had, and, and Sharon will know this, you, you come across certain swimmers and certain athletes who have something about them that you know they have a real positive gene, if you know what I mean, in terms of you know this person's going to perform on the big stage. You have no doubt about this person at all. You know he's going to go in, he's going to mix it, or she's going to mix it. And I had no doubts with David because I've just seen this fascinating and really fabulous upward curve from the Commonwealth Games in 2002 right through to the Games. Yeah, he did. You're absolutely spot on. He, he had the X factor, which is extremely difficult to put your finger on and say what gives somebody the X factor, but he did have it. He had that ability just to be blinkered, to totally focus on his own performance, to not be bothered by anything else or anybody else. Um, and he just went in and did the job that he was prepared for. You know, it was, it was lovely to watch, to be honest with you. It was, it was great swimming. Along with Steve, you know, the fun whole hoo-ha with, with Phelpsy and beating him in the heats. And, then, you know, there was, there was some nice moments, but it was, it was hard work on the side of the pool because I'd never seen such a bunch of distressed swimmers in all my life. And it was only those that had that maturity of either being in the States or a very blinkered, you know, like, like David did, a blinkered approach where he just had supreme confidence in himself and he was doing his own thing. But everybody else was, was very tarnished by by a very rancid atmosphere and even the, the coaches because Bill went from taking the praise from every coach going from the pre three major competitions where they'd won lots of medals and he stole all the praise from every single one of the individual coaches to blaming every single one of those coaches when they didn't perform in Athens so it wasn't just the swimmers it was management as well. You mentioned Steve there he didn't didn't do it the easy way uh, he had a pretty ordinary heat swim uh, snuck into the semi-final 16th and then gave it a lash from lane eight in, in the semi-final I think you know it's fair to say uh, beat Michael Phelps as you say into the final uh, I think he was the fastest qualifier in fact and um, I, I, I watched the race back not not that long ago and um, I still feel that that he could have won silver but he decided to 
to to go for gold. He thought after the semi final, he thought he could have Phelps, and I, I no, he was gonna he was gonna get that gold medal or die trying. It felt like I don't know whether whether it looked like that from the from the deck or the or the commentary position. Yeah, I was I was worried about him hanging on. To be honest, I don't know about you, Sean, from where you were, but I was looking and thinking, come on, Steve. In commentary, I was getting a little bit worried that he was going to run out of gas last fifteen meters there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's that's maybe part of that American thing again, isn't it? You know that they want to. It's, it's sort of bred into them in the states at university that they go in and they race and they go for wins all the time. Um, and I just it was an interesting an interesting lead up. Like you say, it was very on and off. Um, and I'm very glad he did hang on because he's lovely to interview. He's always chatty. <laughs> he's you know he's he's a big shining light when it comes to that. And as Mark was to be honest as well. There was two or three people that are always fun to interview. And no matter how tired they are, they're always beaming and have got something funny or sarcastic to say. And, you know, I like, I like trying to present the personality of the athletes mm. to people at home because swimmers all look the same. You know, our biggest disadvantage in swimming is that we have eight people going down the pool with hats and goggles on, all looking very similar. And so we need to try to sell their faces and their personalities and who they are to the great british which is the big problem you had obviously in athens is you weren't allowed to to bring out yeah. any of the personalities of the swimmers because you weren't allowed to have long enough if any time with the swimmers down there and you'll remember probably uh that for, for the radio point of view we had nick gillingham doing the the interviews down the mix zone and nick was doing the commentary with me and then having to dash down from the commentary position down to the mix zone to do the interviews with you most of the time not getting anybody at all because you hadn't got anybody at all yeah. No, it was a very difficult time for, for the BBC. You know, it was a beautiful looking Olympic Games because we were outside and the sun was shining and you've got the Acropolis there. And it was too all the hot in the morning. It, I loved it. I have to say, well, no, we, I'm we, a bit we, of a sun worshipper, but, you know, I, I didn't mind it at all. I just got out my strappy tops and got into trouble. But <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I recall that bit. Yes. Didn't it make the, didn't it make the newspapers? Uh, I think I it did. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It was uh, hot. It was 102 degrees. What am I supposed <laughs> to wear? But, uh, but the two bronze medals for Britain clearly a step up from from Sydney, but not not where we thought they would be. But I mean, outside the the British, you know, performances, it, it doesn't kind of stick with me as a great Olympics. I mean, there was there was some there were some good stories. The South Africa won the the men's four by one freestyle relay and kind of have been threatening it, but but shocked everyone. I think to some extent. Um, by beating the Americans and the Australians to, to win that. And there was the uh, the race of the century, so-called, in the 200 free. Yeah, with, that's, uh, that's what sticks oh, in my that mind. Was that was a terrific race. Yeah. Well, you, race. You, you had all the great 200 freestylers in the same race, did you know? For, for the modern era, they're all in there. So, yeah, Thorpe uh, trying to get revenge on Peter Van den Hoogemand, who'd beaten him in Sydney, and then uh, Michael Phelps taking the bronze. So, uh, yeah, fantastic race, that one there. Um but, uh, the point but not... for Mel, that was my big memory, you know, from that games as well, because just, yeah, just so, so sad for her because she'd had such a good build up. She was swimming so well um, and just somehow mentally didn't, didn't manage to keep it all together. I remember, I remember watching that semi-final and it was heartbreaking because it was clear that she wasn't in the physical shape mm. that, that, you know, that she'd been in at trials for, for whatever reason. And yet, you know, she was still going to give it a go and um you know she went out like an absolute rocket in her semi-final and then you know someone dropped a grand piano on her at about 125 and it was it was heartbreaking because you know she finished the year ranked number one in the world as well her time from trials was 
was way faster than the gold medal winning time in Athens. So yeah. it's it's heartbreaking. That must be very gutting, isn't it, to have to live with that. Yeah. To know that, that year you swam faster than the person won that Olympic gold medal in. I think that's a very hard thing to to carry on and have in the background. But I think yeah. it's I think it's an experience that shaped her as a coach, though. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Maybe that's what's made her the coach yeah. that she is. That wonderful understanding of the the physical preparation meeting the mental preparation yeah absolutely right time to move on i think from uh, from athens and go uh fast forward again four years to uh beijing in 2008 and uh the first appearance katie of uh, morning finals so uh, oh, yeah. a bit of a change for the swimmers yeah and i think quite a it's, it, it sounds like it shouldn't be that big a change, but I really think it is, you know, people are conditioned to perform, you know, at the very best in the evening. And obviously when you're getting to something like the Olympics, you need to be able to put in a fast performance in the morning. Um, but there's just something about having had, you know, your heat, your, you set yourself up with your heat, you have a bit of a rest, then you go back and you're like, right, this is it. Um, but I think, I think as a nation, we prepared very well. Um, we had morning finals in our trials everyone you know as I think they've been doing for um, Tokyo had been sort of adjusting training and there was a real focus on swimming fast in the morning so I think you know I think pretty much the whole world was as prepared as they could be um, I think you know it's, it feels a shame that athletes are having to adjust something which is so fundamentally part of their the way they set up for a race for TV and I don't think I'd ever really realized that the power of broadcasters really until then um but uh it's definitely interesting and a bit different um not that convenient when you're trying to watch back in the uk though <laughs> the power of a broadcaster uh, yeah absolutely yeah and, and you know from my perspective the weakness of the ioc because if and the weakness of fina because if they tried to do that to track and field track and field would have just told them to get stuffed so mm. i don't understand why swimming allowed them to do that you know to put television rights in front of summer's performances or summer's preparation i just and i still find that extraordinary whenever it's done um you know and obviously there was potential we were going to be doing it again this summer and i just find it incredible that we would adapt our program to suit an american tv station also bear in mind that in 2008 what won't happen this time around for, for tokyo but 2008 NBC One even showing a lot of the stuff live anyway. It was, it was being tape delayed. So they were, they were altering the times. And obviously, as, as Sharon will know, they'll, they'll dip in when there's an American swimmer who's going to do really yeah. well. And there's an American, there's no chance of an American winning it. They won't even show that race. So it's very selective about the races they would show in any case. They wouldn't show the whole session. They would show, they would, they would dip in and dip out. Like, you know, the BBC would probably stick with most of the swimming. But, but NBC wouldn't do that. So they, they like to cherry pick and obviously they have Phelps and people like that. But it annoyed me that you think, right, so you, you've determined or you've convinced the IOC that you're going to have the swimming in the morning, but then you've decided you're going to go off and do basketball and then you're going to go and do something else. So you're not even showing the very thing you've changed the timetable for. Yeah, I don't know about, you know, convince them or whether just you just literally blackmail them into saying, you know, that they have to do this. But I just think it's a shame that something allows them to do that because, as I said, they wouldn't they wouldn't try to even do that with track. So why are they allowed to do it with something? 
I just find it extraordinary, really. Right. I mean, the way you have to look at it is it's the same for everybody. So as a swimmer, when you go in, you know, you, ha you can't get it, let it get to you because you have to go, well, everybody in this, the other seven people I'm racing, they've got exactly the same criteria to meet as me. So it's the same as whether the, when the sun's shining or the, you know, something weird is happening. It's the same for all of us across the pool. So straight away, I'm not going to use that as an excuse. But it, it, yeah, it is very frustrating that they were allowed to do that. And it was the Phelps show, wasn't it? I mean, that's what it was all about. You know, it was all about Michael, really. We'll come back to Michael in a minute because, I mean, morning finals or not, it was a insanely fast Olympics. Um, partly Katie, partly uh, first appearance of, of the bodysuit. So the LZR came in, which had a, a massive impact on on everybody's times really didn't it yeah i think so i mean i don't think we really saw we didn't see the full effect of it in 2008 it was definitely the beginning but it wasn't the circus like 2009 turned out to be um and i don't think it didn't it hadn't got to the point yet where everyone was like oh no wait hang on if we fully coat ourselves in neoprene look how much faster we could go it was sort of it, you know we were looking at paneled suits then just the laser really um and and i don't uh, yeah it's obviously a factor but but i think it was you know I, I, we've all got quite used to you know for example some of the stuff we talked about with athens olympics is not necessarily the fastest it's about who races the best but beijing was a bit of an exception to that and it really it was so fast there were so many world records um and i think part of it is shiny suits but i also think part of it is 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 the sort of momentum effect um and everyone seeing everyone doing so well and a lot of people taking chances i think it was a breakout meet for a lot of people obviously we'll i'm sure we'll come to becky but also there was someone like stephanie rice who was absolutely incredible in those olympics well, she's I think, been good though she was Commonwealth champion i mean it wasn't like she just popped up and we went oh there's steph rice and we already know who she was yeah but three world records i think she broke didn't she in that in that war was a part of one and broke two individually which was like pretty, and, and I, I think she wasn't necessarily the favourite because I think there was a there was a real in terms of women's medley. I think everyone was looking at Katie Hoff, who had a, a disappointing had week a from her. Week, didn't they? The, the American yeah. women had a women. shocking week. Yeah, you know the men were fine, but the women's team, all of them, you know, didn't really swim great. Mm. You mentioned Becky, Katie, so let's <laughs> let's go there because clearly, from a British perspective, in the pool, it was it was the Rebecca Adlington Olympics. Um, you were training with her that year in the, in the lead up, I think. I was training a very long way behind her that year. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you pro you probably had an insight into to how well she was going. I mean, we'd seen her uh, burst onto the scene in two thousand and six at Europeans, I think, with a, what would have been a surprise silver medal. Uh, didn't have the world championship she would have wanted in two thousand and seven, but but did very well in world short course in Manchester earlier in two thousand and eight. Um, but we're still probably relatively unknown outside of you know a hardcore of, of swimming anoraks, if you like, or, or people who followed the sport quite a lot. Um, but did you feel from having seen and been around her in training, what have you, that she was going there to, to do something special? I think there was a different confidence in her from in 2008 from anything I'd ever seen before. And she's, you know, she's always been a confident person, but just a, a real faith in the the work that she was putting in training she just taken to a different level but I think it's however good someone is it's really hard particularly I think being from Britain where something that we were talking about the other day Steve Olympic medals are rare but that makes them more special in a way I think I don't think until you see someone do it 
you really, really think that somebody can be an Olympic champion, someone that you know and you train with day in, day out, however good they are, actually getting your head around the fact that they can be the best in the world and the fastest that the world has ever seen. It's just another, another level of something to get your head around. Um, so I thought she was, you know, going in one of the best in the world, but to actually see her come, come out as Olympic champion, double Olympic champion and world record holder, just absolutely insane. One of those things, I think I woke up my whole house screaming at three in the morning because I couldn't believe it had happened. Well, I think, I think we thought she would do something very special in the 800, the 400 Sharon, probably a bit more of a surprise to everybody, not least Becky, I think from her reaction, but. Uh... Absolutely. I think that was the, I mean, I, I genuinely believe that the, the British media, us, I talk about in swimming, you know, that I've really did think she was going to do something special in 800. So we looked at how well she was swimming, how much she was progressing, what a great year she'd had, her great relationship with her coach, the confidence that she had. Um, again, she was another one of those swimmers that tended to be able to be quite blinkered and quite independent and individual. Um, but the 400 was just everybody else raced rubbish. I mean, they absolutely did. And you talk about it being a fast Olympics. It was, but that 400 freestyle was not a fast Olympics. It was a very slow yeah, race. That's true. And so she was able to just come back so well in that last 50 meters and surprise everybody because they were so busy watching each other, you know, the Americans and the Italians, that she just went up there and, and just blew them out of the water. And then the confidence that gave her to go into that 800 was colossal. Can I mean, I, say, I, I was crying. Can I say? Blathering. Can I say that unfortunately is in my commentary career, my worst <laughs> ever commentary. And I'll tell you why it's my worst ever commentary. Because, I, and I blame it on our bronze medalist because okay. I got distracted by Joe Jackson <laughs> yeah. thinking Joe Jackson's doing something very special and yeah, I yeah, got yeah. distracted massively by her and, 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 and completely overlooked what oh, Becky no. was doing yes exactly so I'm, I'm, I'm following Joe all the way in and then, and then suddenly become aware after I've finished the race off because I, <laughs> I, I do a big thing about Joe getting the bronze and then I'm, I'm realizing as I'm in mid-sentence Hang on a second, you you've really screwed up here, and I did. And unfortunately, when I and I, I'll, I'll hold my hands up here, it, th that was a rookie error because I was looking at Joe all the way into the wall at that stage because I thought Joe's going to do this because Joe also had momentum at the end there. As well, well, she was also the specialist, wasn't she? That she was the four hundred freestyle. Yeah. it was more um, expected to be her race. But I think they had great power being together, being that team in the green room before being in that race together. You know, I just think that they were really good mates. Um, I think that helped them both a lot. So you finally realised the result, Bob? Is that is that, is that where? <laughs> no, no, no. Tell you, I'll tell you what I had to, no, no, no. I'll tell you what I had to do. Well, what, what I had to do, and luckily, I think it kind of worked. I almost restarted the commentary off the back of it, uh, but I, but I don't obviously it didn't do it quite as well as I'd hoped because they ended up using the TV commentary on the radio when they played it in later in the day because uh, obviously Andy obviously nailed it and I didn't on that occasion. <laughs> um, but I had what I had told and, and going back to what. Sharon was talking about I told Michael Cole who I think was our swimming editor at the time going into 2008 I told him that Becky would win the 800 and he didn't believe me he was going oh yeah 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 but you always talk up your sport I go yeah but on this occasion I can tell you for certain that Becky Adlington will win the 800 in mm -hmm. Beijing and he reminded me of that uh, when we came back he said you told me she was going to do that I said yeah I did 
Yeah, I, I, I didn't expect her to win the four. I really, really didn't. But I just, as I said, I think that was other people making mistakes and Becky just grabbing her opportunity. Well, I mean, sometimes that's what you've got to do, isn't it? You know, yeah. you can't control what they're doing. You swim the best race you can swim. And I know it worked for her. So she, she won the gold there in the 400. Joe won the bronze. Uh, Becky went from there to the 800. Uh, qualified fastest for that final. And, you know, to my mind, and, and I'll include Adam in this, in this kind of analysis, I think that's the, the most dominant swim I've seen from a British swimmer in an international final, probably ever. You know, in my in my time following swimming, I mean, she was she was going to win that race from the moment she got on the blocks. Really, it was you know a, a fantastic swim that she put together. She was miles clear of everybody else. She broke uh, Janet Evans' world record that had stood for for nineteen years since nineteen eighty nine. It was absolutely fantastic swim that she put together and Katie I'm sure you probably woke up the family again at four in the morning <laughs> I think they'd stayed up to watch that one with me having missed the first one but I do remember um I do remember speaking to Becky straight after um we, we managed to catch her on the phone and I, I don't think I think if you played that back today it would just be a lot of people screaming um <laughs> down the phone at each other I think it, I completely agree about the dominance of it it was I think when you watch you know too many 800 races are a bit cat and mouse I mean not so much now we've got Katie Ledecky but but I think you know quite often the distance races can be just who's going to make a move whereas she was going and she was going from the start and she knew she wasn't going to run out of gas and it was just hers hers to take in that race it was such a massively confident powerful race yeah it was a beautiful race I mean it was about the world record wasn't it you know that's it wasn't really about the win I think she stood on that block at the beginning at the 800 and knew she was capable of winning this race it was then how fast can I go what can I do and it was a it was a wonderful interval I just remember Cassie Patton coming up running up in the middle of the interview and Becky was in tears and just going oh she's going to be Dame Dame Becky Dame Becky <laughs> and that's my memory of it and, and I bribed already bribed Rebecca by bringing her loads of chocolates I don't you know I'm sure you know Cassie but she loves her chocolate so I had like all this yep. Cadbury's in my bag <laughs> I brought from England for her and Yes, I knew she was going to come straight to me because I had the chocolate. <laughs> yeah, and then the marked contrast of the 400 and 500, we knew very well. I was already thinking about, right, how am I going to finish this race off now? Because, um, <laughs> and, and, and also another little tale for you, I never have written down uh, commentary on a conclusion of anything I've done. I did on this occasion because I wanted to get it right because I knew she was going to do something special. So I wrote, not the whole of it, but I wrote, probably about a paragraph's worth of stuff that I might potentially use at the conclusion of that race. And I use some of it and I've heard it back since and it doesn't sound like I'm reading it. Um, but I just thought, right, you, you, you screwed up the first time. You ain't doing it again, boy. You're going to get this right this time. So, so for that one, I actually did write some words down just to, to, to accompany the end of it because at 500 meters, I knew full well that I'm going to have to be uh, waxing lyrical about three or four minutes later. So the, 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 the three medals won in the pool then, two, two golds for Becky and the bronze for Joe, and then uh, uh, Cassie Patton. And a big and... turnaround, you know, as well. Because you oh, yeah. remember, really, for quite a few Olympics previous, it was all about the guys. So the girls have been quite in the shadows for quite a long time, and this was Becky bringing the girls right back into the frame as well. Because we'd had only men's medals for quite a while. No, it's, it's, it's very true. And then... Uh... It's you, pretty much. <laughs> since well, you and Sarah Hardcastle actually well, yeah. I was going to say yeah, yeah 1884 yeah, we were yeah, fine yeah, but yeah. you know then we had a big old phase of time where we had hardly won any girls medals at all can I, can I talk about the controversial moment though before we move on to uh, the next Olympic Games 
do we believe that Milorad Karvich got beaten by uh, oh. <laughs> Michael Phelps? Because <laughs> I still don't. Oh. I still do not believe that 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 result was was genuine. Yeah. Was, that, was that the Olympics? It was. For some reason I had that in my head down as Rome the next year. No, it was no. a I bit like more I decisive the following year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. Uh, it was. Well, they don't time well, it yeah. thousands, do they? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it was ridiculously close. I mean. You have to take it on trust, don't you? That Omega know how their equipment works, and that, yeah, but, that was the answer. But that, but, but that would have killed yeah. the story. That would have killed the story for the Olympics. Well, it nearly it nearly died on on the first night, didn't it? The eight gold medal uh, re, you know, challenge that, that Michael was putting together in that the the men's four by one free again, producing producing drama with the the French thinking that they would win it, have the world record holder on the anchor leg, and go in with a lead. I saw a I saw a. Uh, a uh, podcast with Jason Lezak on it, you know, not that long ago, and uh, he said that their plan was that he was going to go in with a lead so that he could just hang on and have Alan Bernard chasing him. And of course, he went in half a body length down or something, which was completely not the plan, um, but produced, you know, astonishing anchor leg uh, to, to haul the Americans back and take the win. I'm imagining Bob Sharon that the atmosphere in the pool at that point was was electric. It was a great pool. I love that pool. Was, I mean, from the outside, you know, they had all the squares, didn't they? And they all lit mm. up. And then, and then there was all the bubbles on the ceiling. It was, yeah. they, they designed the pool really well. They spent an awful lot of money, China, on trying to make that Olympic Games a sort of show-off Olympic Games. Technically, look, look what we can do. Look what we can build. You know, look at these pools. Look at this track. Look, look at the stadium. Look at the Olympic Park. Um, you know, it was. I, I was quite... Uh, do you know what? Weirdly for me, I find it one of the most disappointing Olympics. Not because of because in the swimming pool it was wonderful because of Becky, but as a whole, I thought they kind of didn't present China. They wanted so much to tell the world about how wonderful they were and how modern they were. They, they'd forgotten some of the history about China, yeah. and they lost that at that Olympic Games. And I, I've, I've been to eleven, and that's probably my my least favourite of all of them. Well, you should know. Well, Weirdly. if you've done the Paralympics, you'll realise how little they didn't want to put that on. Uh, really? it, it, oh, that, that was so underplayed so massively underplayed but it made, you're right with the olympics as well it was um yeah it had a kind of it's sterile, funny, it? It funny, sterile, it did have a sterile feel, it? feel about it mm. and that's what it felt all the time you know it just felt like it was a little bit pretentious and we want to show off rather than let's show some of our wonderful chinese history it was like well we want to ignore the fact that we've got this incredible history and just be all about the future um and it lost a little bit of its Oomph. Yeah, I kind of like live my life in four-year increments. You know, from which one <laughs> Olympic Games to the next Olympic Games, and what that gave me, and what the next one gave me, and yeah, I think I mean London, without doubt, my favourite. Twenty twenty, you know, twenty twelve. But I loved before that Barcelona was lovely. It was a it was a great Olympic Games, but they all have a different feel to them. Every single one. Well, we'll come to London in in just a minute. But before we leave Beijing, uh, obviously, you know, the three medals in the pool. Um, and then went on to win another another three in the open water with uh, with David Davis mm -hmm. taking silver. Yes. Uh, could have been gold. If oh, he, should if have been gold. Should have been gold. gold. <laughs> oh mm. dear, he lost his bearings. He didn't. He didn't have yeah. his uh, his Google Maps on him for that finish. Because <laughs> yeah. um, he, 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 we're all sitting there, and I'm I'm commentating with Karen Pickering, and we're looking at each other, going, "What is he doing? Where is he going?" <laughs> Because because it, it was there for him, and all of a sudden it, it was like somebody had got a remote control and just pushed him in a completely different direction. And I'm sure, I, yeah, I, I know he was happy enough with the silver, but he must be kicking himself even today. Where he must have looked back at that race, thinking, "What was I doing at that stage?" 
But I do think it was a phase in the history of the event, a bit like triathlon when it first started, where you could get away with being a pool swimmer who went to open water. You obviously can't do that nowadays. You know, so it yeah. was still in that inaugural phase where people could just go, oh, well, I'm going to train for the 1500 meter in the pool and then I'm going to dabble at a bit of open water. And I still felt like that that's where David suffered just a little bit was that he, he didn't have the open water experience. He just had the wonderful fitness from the 1500. So on fitness alone, he could have won it, but it was a different animal swimming open water. Well, I saw, a, I saw a talk from Bill Furness, uh, 2013, I think, where he actually made that exact point that, that Britain had done much better at getting their best pool swimmers into the open water than, than anyone else had at that point in time. And, and now, as you say, Sharon, it, you know, it's much more specialist and, and doing them both is very difficult. But uh, Britain also won silver and bronze in the ladies with uh, Kerry Ann mm. Payne and um, uh, Cassie Patton. And with Kerry Ann doing the, um, the obvious double of the 200 and 400 IM in the pool and the 10 kilometre in the open water. And you just, yeah. you know, nobody would yeah. even be thinking about doing that you know, now because it'd <laughs> just be ridiculous. No, so, absolutely. Uh, couldn't get away with it, could you? You know, you no. really, really couldn't get away with it. No, not at all. But, but behind the medals, Katie, um, you know, Becky dominated and, and, you know, three medals maybe doesn't seem as big a step up from, from two bronzes in Athens as, as perhaps, it, perhaps it is because, uh, because it was, you know, very much about her. But behind her, it did seem a much better, you know, games for, for Britain in the pool because there were lots more fourths, fifths and sixes and lots of final, you know, appearances so it, it did seem to be a, a step forward yeah uh, I, I think, think it sort of felt like we'd started to mm. sort of rebuild ourselves a bit more as a, a force in swimming um we weren't just you know other countries also attending we were we were there and we were well represented and we were you know sort of in finals I think um we took some opportunities and, and possibly missed a few as well um but it's definitely it was definitely this sort of the a real upturn I think then I mean, not just obviously with Becky, uh, you know, and, and that there had been success in previous years. I think there may be a couple of, of disappointing people, you know, performances. I think we probably had, there were a few people that, I, if I remember rightly, had been pre-selected as a result of the Melbourne uh, World Championships the year before. And I think we all had quite high hopes for um, someone like, uh, Kirsty, I've forgotten her, her last Kirsty, name. Kirsty Balfour. Balfour. Yeah, yeah, I could only yeah. remember her. 200 breaststroke. Name, I was, this is not going to make any sense. Um, yeah, who'd, who'd been incredible the year before and won a, a medal at the World Championships, but the problem with pre selection. You'd had a great Commonwealth. Yeah, well. she had had a great Commonwealth. Um, things, things just changed, and I think that's the last time that we, that might well be the last time that we've done any kind of pre selection in the pool um, because I'm just not sure that it paid off. Also, we, we got our combination wrong for the women's four by two that we expected to get a medal from, and we didn't. I think that was such a mischance, and I would squarely point the finger of blame in one coach's direction, but um, uh, he's a great coach, but I think that was a terrible decision um, at the Olympics. Um, and I think it, that actually had quite an effect on the, the people involved. Um, I think Becky and Caitlin McClatchy were both arrested in the heat, right, and they yeah. ended up missing a final that they, they, I mean, it was such a strong team. And they medalled the following year at World Championships. I think that they, that's just an Olympic medal that we should be talking about, and we're I mean, not. I mean, I remain unconvinced that they would have would, would have no. I mean, they could have won a medal. Don't get me wrong. I remain unconvinced that they were a shoe in to get on that podium because it was a really fast final. Um, but certainly, uh, I think there was an element of hubris in the in the heat selection, um, and and finishing ninth 
and just missing that final was was the outcome of that. And you know, you would have thought that you know, resting resting maybe just Becky would have been would have been appropriate. And then who knows? You never once you've got a lane, you've got a chance, haven't you? But um, mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to the notion that it was a it was a given that we would win a medal. But certainly, it was a, a big opportunity missed in in that particular case. So. Uh, yeah. I think there was definitely some some races, you know, where we were hoping for to scrape a medal somewhere else other than just Becky's races um, and Joe's, to be honest with you. But it was the girls' competition, without doubt. Um, we can't really tell you much about the men's races in that particular Olympics, but it was all about the British <laughs> girls. <laughs> yeah, well, there were some... Uh, uh, yeah, as you say, Thomas Boffus was fourth, just missed uh, a few other... No fourths yeah. around the place, you know. So, uh, and yeah, they're horrible was, positions, aren't they? I yeah. mean, you know, when you're doing interviews as well. I mean, it's probably my least favourite interview is to interview swimmers when they come fourth, because you know it's a great race. You've done a, an amazing time. It's a huge achievement to be fourth in the world. But whoever remembers fourth, you know, it's just yeah. You don't have a little piece of medal that you can stick in your drawer that you can look at every once in a while. Three Olympics down then in our review of the last twenty years of Olympic swimming. We'll be back with the second part of this podcast to look at events in London and Rio very soon. But in the meantime, if you want to get in contact, it's at Poolboy on Twitter. You can go to facebook.com slash poolboyuk or go to poolboy.co.uk forward slash contact to send an email. Until we're with you again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to a Poolboy podcast special. For more episodes, visit www.hoolboy.co.uk slash podcast.